So tonight I want to continue this exploration of the Satipatthana Sutta, now up to the third foundation of mindfulness. And each time I reread this sutta, as I teach about it, as I talk about it, I'm just always so impressed by the teaching of the Buddha and what is contained in this relatively short teaching. It's in the middle-length discourses, so it's not a short discourse, it's a middle-length discourse, but it's only about 10 pages long, but so incredibly dense. And to just realize that within that are the seeds of all of the different practices that have, um, all of the different mindfulness and insight practices that we do to this day. It's just amazing to realize that. And even though, as I said when I began this series, um, it starts with a certain place and time, the Buddha speaking to the uh, Kurus in the town Kamasadama, I actually don't completely believe that he just sat down and laid that whole thing out all in one go. Um, might, might be heresy, but don't quite believe that. Um, but scholars, Buddhist scholars who've explored this, do believe, even those that aren't Buddhist practitioners, actually they're advised not to be, to be a true scholar, you're not meant to get involved in the actual practices that you're studying, which is a little strange, but anyway, they do believe that there is a real historical figure whose these words represent um, just the various data points that we have and this unique and original voice that comes through the suttas. But it's understandable that many of the suttas got added to or rearranged over time. And so this one, I, I do believe that also happened, that as the practices evolved during probably the lifetime of the Buddha, perhaps a little later, they're like, oh, this really fits, or this really helps as a practice. So they were collected in this sutta. Venerable Analayo Bhikkhu, who's written a great book on this one sutta, just called Satipatthana, his main interest now is doing kind of comparative study of the of certain texts as they're represented in different traditions and lineages. And he can, by tracing what's common, amongst the different versions he can get us we can get a sense of what was probably more original what was there in the early days and so he has quite a bit to say in his most recent book about this sutta but even so even if some of it was added later it's an amazing compendium of practices all with one thrust all with one um, aim which is to bring us to awakening to see clearly to have freedom and so, the, you know, they do believe that the Buddha was a historical figure. He lived in the context of a certain time and place. I think I've talked a little bit about this before. You know, it was a, a time of a lot of spiritual activity. Many teachers available, many people spe- uh, practicing very sincerely, a lot of homeless wanderers practicing in all kinds of different ways. And the Buddha, both before his um, journey, after his awakening, he was often having contact with all of these teachers and practices. Um, but he rejected a lot of what was available at the time. Asceticism, he tried, said it didn't work. All of the practices um, that the Brahmin caste, it was a very simple caste system at that time in India, Brahmin or priestly caste were the spiritual leaders who did a lot of purification and ritual and sacrifices. And he said none of those were effective for what 
um, what the intention was for liberation. People like Bahia that Greg was talking about last night was one of these wanderers who had some idea of how to get enlightened and they were completely missing the boat. So he rejected a lot of that. But he kept samadhi, which he also practiced before his awakening and, and, and thoroughly recommended afterwards. He kept aspects of devotion, not to sort of gods or to, to pray for anything, but actually to um, bring faith and confidence in the possibility of awakening through refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha that Greg spoke about, oh, those many weeks ago when we all came here for that first night of teaching. So it's this synthesis. He kept what he felt was helpful and, and rejected a lot. So he was a radical in his time. And the brilliance of his teaching was mindfulness. The centerpiece of what he discovered was this radical turning. Instead of all of this outward devotion, praying, ritual sacrifice, or even concentration, the stilling of the mind, was this radical turning to pay attention to the very processes of mind and body itself, themselves, whatever, um, our inner experience, and to cultivate a very different relationship to the body than was normal at that time, and even is not, you know, it's different from what our normal association is today, and to see clearly the nature of this experience, and particularly radical, to actually turn and look at the nature of the mind itself. So again, not the content of the mind, not figuring out, thinking about things, but the very nature of the mind itself, and the power of doing that of actually the possibility of doing that for a start, even to conceive of that, but then the power of that. Um, and as we said, Andrea was talking this morning about how the Buddha wasn't interested in philosophizing, figuring things out, the, the meaning of this or that, or the, the world and its beginnings and ends. He, he would sometimes talk a little bit about that, but he just really refused to get involved in that debate. And those debates have continued to this day. You know, what's the meaning of life and what's the beginning of this and that and what, you know, all of these different philosophies that have um, arisen and, and been debated about all these thousands of years. I, I recently saw it, an old tape of Robin Williams and he was doing his usual manic thing of just, you know, this potpourri of stream of consciousness. But somehow he brought up philosophy and he brought up Descartes, who's the famous philosopher for I think, therefore I am. So this was the joke. Descartes walks into a bar and the bartender says, how about a beer? And Descartes says, I think not, and promptly disappeared. That's what happens if you take that too seriously. <laughs> so the Buddha was not interested, you know, do I exist or not exist in between all of these kind of things. He said, look at the very nature of this experience, of this mind and body, and know it as it is in this direct, immediate way, and see how that leads to wisdom, to insight, and to freedom. And so this section of the Satipatthana Sutta particularly points to that because it's mindfulness of mind, citta nupassana. So the, the Pali word here that we're being invited to be mindful of is citta. It's an interesting word that we often usually translate as mind, but it means more mind-heart. It, it's got connotations of both the thinking, rational 
capacity of the mind, but also the emotions, the emotive uh, capacity. And I don't know if you know this, I'm told that in many Asian countries, when people will talk about thinking, they won't, you know, we'll sort of tap up here, right? And think that we, our belief is the mind is up here. They'll tap here. You know, I think, I feel, really seeing them as the same. So it's looking at that aspect of um, mind, mind, heart, states of mind, emotions, moods, um, qualities of mind, and also meditative qualities of mind. Because we know the mind through its functioning, right? The mind is, is in some essential way empty. We know it through uh, its contents or its states, its associated mental factors. And this is what we're invited to be mindful of in this section of the sutta. So I'll just read it because it's relatively short, about the same length as the Vedana, Samyutta, uh, Vedana Nupasana. And how does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind as mind? Here a bhikkhu, remember that just means a practitioner, understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust, as mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. She understands mind affected by hate as mind affected by hate, and mind unaffected by hate as mind unaffected by hate. He understands mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion, as mind unaffected by delusion, as mind unaffected by delusion. And goes on, I'll just gloss it, understands contracted mind, distracted mind, exalted mind, unexalted mind, surpassed mind, unsurpassed mind, concentrated mind, and unconcentrated mind, and then liberated mind, and unliberated mind. We're invited to be mindful of all of these aspects of mind. And then the same refrain, refrain as the other sections, contemplating mind internally, contemplating mind externally, both internally and externally, contemplating mind in its nature of arising, in its nature of vanishing, nature of both arising and vanishing, and this my favorite line, every section, or else mindfulness that there is a mind is simply established in her to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness, and she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating mind as mind. And that's the whole section, whole section of Chitta Nupasana. So again, just a reminder, if this starts to seem too complicated, too much going on, mindfulness to the extent necessary. I have a body, I have a mind. As Munindra would often say, if you just sit and know you're sitting, all of the Dharma will be revealed to you. Always go back to keep it simple. But I also want to, you know, we can, I'll go through um, these different qualities that the Buddha particularly has highlighted. But again, like the other parts of the text, I think the main pointing is to what we do with these experiences, not what the particular experiences are. And here it's to understand the mind affected by these different qualities, to understand it. That's the most important thing. It doesn't really matter what 
the actual experiences. So the emphasis is on the knowing rather than the content, the understanding, the mindfulness. And this word, Guy spoke a bit about it the other, I, don't know whether it was in, I think it was in his talk about this is the key point to mindfulness, this knowing clearly the experience. You could say understanding the experience. There's some wisdom in it. And the wisdom, as we're invited later in the, in the section, is that there's a conditioned states. They arise and they pass. They're not to be taken as me or mine. And to really see that the power of all of these practices, what was in the sutta, what we're doing here, is not so much each individual experience as, pow- as powerful as they might be, as difficult as they might be sometimes, as liberating or insightful as they might be at times. It's the training of the mind to notice, the training of the faculty of mindfulness. And then we can use that to reveal whatever is right here in this moment. That's what's important. So we train this functioning of mindfulness to know more and more subtle aspects of experience and also to be steady when experience is really strong or difficult or challenging, that the mindfulness can still be there. We don't get lost or swamped or overwhelmed. This is really what I think is key and is being pointed to again and again. And it can seem, I don't know, annoying to have someone say, your experience isn't important. You know, my fear, my anger, my lust, my greed, my, my loss, my grief. In, in a way, yes, of course. There's a validity to that, a truth with a lowercase t. But the pointing or the practice here is how are we relating to it? What is the mind affected by those experiences like? And can we know that? And that's where the liberating potential really is, training this functioning of mindfulness. And then whatever, it's like a light beam, a spotlight, whatever it shines on, will be revealed as it needs to be revealed. So in the sutta, what the Buddha presents is first a list, the very old old friend's uh, version of the kalesas, the torments of mind, and a sort of a lot of pairs of wholesome and unwholesome qualities of mind and developed or undeveloped qualities of mind, especially in the realm of concentration. What I really like about this section is its non-judgmental nature. It just says, you know the mind affected by lust, and you understand the mind not affected by lust, unaffected by lust. Same for greed, same for aversion, same for delusion. You just know it. It doesn't say, and that's a terrible, you know, the mind affected by lust is a terrible thing and get rid of it. It just says one understands this is what the mind is like. So the, the qualities, are, the, are they there or not there? The knowing is the same. The pointing is the same, affected or unaffected by these particular qualities. Ajahn Sumedho, who's been a teacher for many of us, um, was the abbot at Amaravati Monastery and all of the uh, other monasteries in that tradition, that lineage. Um, Such an amazing teacher. One of his key lines that he would say again and again, whatever he was talking about, he would say, well, you have to know greed to know non-greed. You have to know aversion to know non-aversion. So he wasn't saying, you know, get rid of greed, you shouldn't have, it's bad, it's wrong. He said, no, when it's here, know it. 
understand it. It's only by truly understanding it that you can know its opposite, non-greed, non-hatred. So the encouragement isn't to reject these experiences, but to know them, to understand them. And it really points to the power again of mindfulness. And mindfulness as the greatest purifier, the greatest... um, the, the, the potency of mindfulness to liberate just through that clear seeing. Now, that doesn't mean that that's the only thing that we can do if the mind is really affected by some of these difficult states, but that's the terrain of the next foundation of mindfulness that I'll talk about next week. For the moment, it's just this bare knowing and so liberating, just that, that that's all we need to do. So we're asked to be mindful of, begins with our old friends. Here the list is defined as, uh, translated as lust, hate, delusion. But it's really kind of shorthand for the classes, for all of the torments of mind. There are many lists that put different things in that category. Greed, aversion, delusion, lust, hate, uh, ignorance, all of these um, roots of the unwholesome these uh, things that really give us uh, problems. And then there are some not-so-familiar ones. So the contracted mind, that's a mind that's kind of rigid or dull. It's, it's got a fixity to it. After um, Guy did what's normally called the big mind meditation the other day, you know, when thoughts are like clouds and everything's just arising in the empty space of awareness, Greg has been threatening to do the contracted mind meditation. I'm still waiting for it. Let your mind be narrow and tight. Let everything be solid and a problem. Be attached to everything that arises. You know that mind, right? We don't have to practice that one. That's the contracted mind. So the Buddha says, know that mind when it's present. The distracted mind, the restless mind, We know that one too, right? I'll talk more about that. And then the exalted and unexalted, unsurpassed and surpassed are really the the positive ones are talking about um, levels of jhana, especially the higher levels of jhana and ordinary states of mind. That The the, um, levels of jhana, the exalted mind, the unsurpassed minds are really at the sort of tipping point of those deep states of concentration tipping to liberation and the other when the mind is in more ordinary states of mind. Then, of course, concentrated, unconcentrated, I think we know. And if, when the, the, in this text, I'm told, when the, even though the word liberated is used, it's a temporary liberation, partially freed from the defilements, is the terrain this is talking about. So again, we'll talk more about that later. So, this is what we're asked to be mindful of in this very simple way. These qualities, is the mind affected by them or unaffected by them? Mindfulness of mind is one of the trickiest things, right? I mean, I'm sure you've all had a sense to be mindful of a thought, to truly know an emotion and not get lost in it. They can, it can seem, the experience can seem so strong until we actually try to bring mindfulness to it, right? Sometimes it can seem, excuse me, so solid and then it's like a fog or it's moving around or we're not quite sure what is happening. But 
This is the work of meditation. We use the experiences of breath and body as a place to stabilize attention. There's a lot we can learn from the manifestations of breath and body, but it's through the mind, right, that we know that. And it's in the mind that we suffer or find freedom, happiness or unhappiness. Sayadaw Tejaniya says again and again, meditation is the work of the mind, of training the mind, of understanding the mind. So here we're... This is the territory we're in when, with this foundation. So when we talk about these particular states that the Buddha is pointing to, but really any um, moods, emotions, states of mind, we can experience them in different ways, sometimes just as a coloring in the mind, a kind of filter through which we see the world. There can be thoughts or images. There can often be a physical response in the body, especially to strong emotions. Um, and so if there's an emotion, there's whatever, however it's manifesting, and then there's how we're relating to that. And this is where mindfulness can be so helpful. Because sometimes even without meditation, we can have a sense of wanting to know or understand our emotional life. Some people very skilled in that, quite naturally. But mindfulness adds another layer to that where we start to pay attention to how are we being with that emotion? Are we attached to it, identified with it, fearful of it, anxious about it? Um, Is it causing suffering or not? What's its vedana? Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Can we be mindful of it? Can we understand that the mind is affected by this particular experience? Are we identified with it? Is it creating a sense of self? These are aspects or this is the power of mindfulness to really reveal deeper layers of what this experience actually is. Do we see the emotion as who I am? Telling a story about me, creating a whole belief system. All of these change how we view the emotion, how we experience the emotion, I should say. But often we don't see that. We're just so caught in and identified with the emotion. And so bringing mindfulness to this, the emotion, and then how we're relating to it can really reveal a lot and begin to unstick a little bit the way we can be lost or identified um, in emotions or strong states of mind. Again, Sayadaw Tejaniya says you can have many kind of levels of awareness. You know, you can have an object, and then you're aware of that. Then you can be aware that you're aware of the object. And then you can be aware that you're aware that you're aware of the object. And sort of going on like that, just this kind of refining of the awareness. And with each one, there's a little bit unhooking, unsticking of our lostness in experience. If we don't see some aspect of that, we're usually identified with the emotion. You know, we can sit here noting anger, anger, or irritation, or whatever it is, and yes, there is some mindfulness, but without this clearer seeing, we're often feeding, solidifying the emotion itself. Or we think we're being mindful of this, and there's another whole story going on over here that we're just not even aware of. I think I mentioned in my 
Vedna talk, the story of the ice cream. I mean, for me, it's a big story. For you, you're like, huh, ice cream. But anyway, um, three-month course many years ago, I think I said the food was a lot simpler back in those days. I mean, it was good enough, but pretty simple. And someone had given an ice cream dana. And I talked about the pleasantness of tasting the ice cream. And oh, you know, it was just such a hit. But there was a lot more to that story. So, you know, going through the food line, you know, they put that stuff out at the end table so you don't see it until the end. So going through it. And then, you know, I can admit my eyes were like... And the, the thoughts just started rolling. I don't think they had the ice cream refrigerated or in ice or anything. And, you know, as I'm being very mindful, kind of, you know, getting my rice and beans, <laughs> and it's like, it's not refrigerated, it's going to melt. And I eat slowly. And what if people take more than me and I don't get to have seconds? And, you know, what flavors are there? And lifting, you know, beans. beans. (laughs) And just this whole thing. And then I'm finally getting closer and it's starting to melt and I don't have a bowl. And, you know, you know what it's like. You're going to go put the food down and go get a bowl. And the hubbub around that back table of getting something and taking some ice cream and then trying to eat mindfully (laughs) while the ice cream is melting right in front of me. It's like... But I was very mindful, right? Mindful. And then finally, finally, I finished the rice and beans or whatever it is, and, oh, the ice cream, oh, it's so good. Oh. But it's just a little bit, right? And it's all gone, you know. My mind was just spinning around this ice cream. It was amazing. I left the dining room. I was exhausted. It was like the biggest thing that had happened for months. I'm like, phew, I'm glad that's over. You know, it was good. Oh. But then, you know, back, sitting, walking, lifting, moving, placing, whatever, gone. The next day, in the hall, question time, someone puts their hand up and says something like, you know, I was doing really well until they put the ice cream out. (laughs) And then he relayed a little bit about all the mind states. And I was sitting there going, oh, my God. You know, all the things that I had thought and felt, I wasn't mindful of any of it. I thought, I, you know tasting the beans or, you know, seeing. The whole thing was, I don't, you couldn't say under the radar because it was so big, but I was not mindful of it. I was in my little, you know, lifting, moving, placing world, and there was this whole drama going on, all of these emotions. You know, don't they know that people eat slowly and they should put more out, and what about seconds? And all of, you know, the mind just making all these judgments. It was amazing. It was like a light bell went off. And it, you know, just to point to how we think we're being mindful and there's another whole world there that we haven't even noticed. So this is where the mindfulness of the mindfulness of of what's happening is really so important, so helpful. And why the um, technique that I think we've mentioned here before of RAIN, right, the acronym RAIN, Really very helpful if you just have an inkling that something is going on. You know, notice a strong thought, emotion, reaction, judgment, rain. Recognize, as in give it a name. What is this? Agitation, judging, wanting, desire, resistance. A, for acceptance or allowing. It's here. Give it the space that it needs. Don't feed it, but don't try to ignore it or suppress it. The I for interest, investigation, or I think I've said I like intimacy. Just that meeting of experience with some kind of 
delicacy. And then the N, non-identification, not personal. I also like nature. It's just the way things are. Any aspect of that will be helpful for you. Put them all together and they're just a really wise way um, of working with these layers of experience. Don't just stop at what's obvious. There's always more going on. I really like this Kabir poem about the complexity, the, the layers of our response and that the mind just always trying to feed off something. I actually need the title of it, I don't know what it's called. Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold on to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap, which is very coarse, like canvas. I bought some burlap, burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving my greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. That sense of self, the invitation to keep looking, keep looking a little more deeply at what our experience is. So to go through the sutta uh, in a little more detail, um, it begins with our old friends, lust, hate, delusion, greed, aversion, ignorance, the torments of mind, calaces, the roots of the unwholesome they're often called, all of the different variations of those mind states we're invited to be mindful of, to know the mind affected by them and the mind unaffected, their presence and their absence. Again, in this very non-judgmental way. What's interesting is the absence of them, especially in the Pali, the way Pali as a language works, can or does imply the positive. So the absence of aversion can be kind of a neutrality, non-ill will, but in the positive expression can be metta. The absence of greed can be generosity. So that whole range we're invited to notice. But it can be hard, you know, when we're told notice the mind affected by lust or greed and not affected. How do you notice something that's not there? It's kind of a conundrum, isn't it, to notice the absence of something. And in any moment, all of the things that aren't there, you know, it could be joy isn't there, or peace isn't there, or grief isn't there, or irritation isn't there, or sadness isn't there. A lot of things perhaps not there. But I think what's more helpful is to notice the ending of things. When we have a strong state of mind emotion, can we be aware of when that dissipates, because it does change, right? You know, how many of you come into interviews and kind of throw your hands up and go, oh, so much has happened, or, you know, that state I talked about last time, it's completely changed, or, I, you know, I mentioned something like, oh, that was yesterday, you know, different world today. We start to see how much these minds change. Noticing this change, really reflecting on it, not 
dwelling on it and telling a story about it, but just bringing this into our awareness so we're not stuck or identifying ourselves as X. You know, I'm always so like this, fearful or sad or irritated or whatever it is. Changing, right? Conditioned. And to start to experience the power of mindfulness itself to have this purifying role, to actually start to unstick the solidity, the, the delusion that we have about these experiences, that they define us or that they're permanent in any kind of way. But it begins with knowing when they're there and this kind of honesty or humility, you know, uh, just like I was saying, being willing to look a little at the layers of experience. How are we relating to this experience, this emotion? Again, Venerable Analeo from the book Satipatthana says, the habit of employing self-deception to maintain one's self-esteem has often become so ingrained that the first step to developing accurate self-awareness is all honest acknowledgement of the existence of hidden emotions, motives, and tendencies in the mind without immediately suppressing them. So it's kind of this rigorous honesty, you know, what's really happening here? And this is, you know, when we say sit with something, feel something in the body, what's the resonance there? What's the attitude? This is that kind of exploration, this kind of honesty about our experience, this integrity, you could almost say. I often teach um, concentration in a concentration retreat at Spirit Rock, and one of the things I love about it is how it reveals or uh, people get exposed to this spectrum of practices from samatha practices, the calming, tranquilizing, simple practices that lead uh, to concentration and vipassana, insight, where there's more interest in investigation. But in concentration, it's become so clear to me in my own practice and in teaching it that if the mind isn't steadying, isn't somewhat still and connected with in the present moment, one or more of the hindrances are present. It's just a pretty simple rule of thumb that that's the case. Um, and so acknowledging that, if, if you're noticing that there's not settledness of mind, that there isn't this kind of steadiness, and I'm not talking about jhana here, but just a, a steadiness of mind, hindrances are present, one or more of them. What's going on? This is... Uh, actually the field of the next foundation, but that's what we can bring into our awareness. And it's the same with mindfulness too. You know, there's an intention here to be present, continuous mindfulness. We keep talking about it. We don't actually expect you to be continuously mindful 24-7 or even 18-7 or whatever. You don't get days off here, so the seven still stands, but whatever amount of hours. But as, as best you can, that's the intention. But with mindfulness, we can bring these, the hindrances or whatever's up for us, these disturbances of mind. We can be mindful of them. With concentration, they really are a hindrance to the concentration. Mindfulness, they can be included in, the, in our mindfulness. But we have to be willing to know when they're present to know when they're present and know when they leave. So it's also acknowledging when the beautiful states are present, 
just like Guy was talking about the other night, the factors of awakening, these beautiful qualities of mind and heart, to also acknowledge the mind is affected by these, is inspired, brightened, uh, given faith, sadha, by these beautiful factors of mind. So we know these qualities of mind, and especially whether they're beautiful or difficult, this is the field of the third foundation. So the first one is to know the mind affected by lust, by greed, by attachment. I talked quite a bit about this in the talk on Vedna, where the basic teaching is the pleasant Vedna leads to the mind grasping, right? If we don't notice it, the mind just wants more of whatever's pleasant. The second one is aversion, all of the variations of hatred, ill will, aversion. When there's unpleasant Vedana, the mind gets stuck in the same way, but through trying to push away, not wanting. Um, so we've talked quite a bit about those. I wanted to spend a bit more time, even though Andrea gave a talk on delusion, just to point to this again, because we talk quite a lot about greed and aversion, and it's they can be fairly clear in our experience. They're somewhat painful usually, so we're drawn to notice them. It's really hard to notice delusion, right? It's its very nature is to be confusing. That's the definition of it. At Sylvia Borstein, one of our colleagues and friends, she has a young grandson, and she, I remember she told me she was invited to go to his school to teach mindfulness, which is great. You know, mindfulness is happening more and more in schools. It's fabulous. But he asked a really good question. He said, Grandma, how do I know when I'm not being mindful? And this is our conundrum, right? How do we know when we're not being mindful? Another friend and colleague, Richard Shankman, he will nearly always ask, what's the practice for when you're in delusion or when you're not being mindful? What's the practice? What should you do then? Not a rhetorical question. It's a good thing. would be a good thing to know. But the trick is there isn't a practice because you're deluded. You're confused. You're lost. There isn't a way out until mindfulness, the mental factor of mindfulness, arises again. We can't make that factor happen, just like we can't really control the thoughts that arise. But successive moments of mindfulness incline us to more moments of mindfulness. That's, it's not a trick, it's actually a very open book. That's what does it. We actually have to really keep feeding the habit of mindfulness. That's what will allow it to break through the delusion. That really is the source of suffering. I mean, the, in the um, Four Noble Truths, the tanha, craving, said to be the source, the cause of suffering. But really, if you look deeper, and the teaching on dependent origination says ignorance. Ignorance is key. Ignorance is what gets the whole wheel going. Because if we weren't deluded, we wouldn't believe that Hanging on to something would bring us happiness. Delusion is so key. And delusion works at so many levels. We can be deluded, ignorant of the Dhamma, the way things are, the three characteristics, the four noble truths. But we can also have our own unique versions of delusion, right? Our own particular manifestations. 
all the ways we stay on the surface of things, stay on superficial or even disconnected, um, when we're telling ourselves stories and believing them as true, when we complicate things, papancha, I think someone was talking about that the other night, these um, experiences of confusion or fuzziness, when we don't listen to our bodies, pay attention to them. I remember going hiking not so long ago with a friend and you know we had an objective we wanted to get to but I and it was quite a long hike a tiring uphill hike and I said I really need to stop and get something to eat eat and she was like no no we want to I want to get there I want to go for it really and I'm like no I and so I said I've got to have so I just stopped and took something to eat and then she was like pacing and just standing there wanting to go on by the time we got to the top she was exhausted you know her body was depleted she was dizzy she didn't pay attention needed to refuel and we can do that in in gross ways and really subtle ways on a physical level of the needs of the body and then on even an emotional level of just not paying attention Sometimes we can, the delusion we're out of touch with our surroundings or our impact on other people, especially here in retreat, we get more sensitive. So that can be a a form of delusion, just not realizing um, the ripples. And I'm not saying that, you know, that we should be self-conscious, but just um, this kind of awareness of of our uh, experience. I think I've mentioned uh, a few times that I often lead a program called Dedicated Practitioners Program. Andrea is leading it at the moment. And it's a great program for senior students where we really explore the Dhamma in a very alive way. It's The retreats aren't in silence. They're very experiential. We come up with very creative exercises and practices to look at these teachings. And so one time we were... Um, exploring the kalesas, and we decided to do it with what we called um, kalesa panels. I don't know if you know um, the Enneagram, where they have the seven, what do they call them, personality types, and sometimes they'll do panels where the different personality types will get together. You kind, They kind of reveal themselves by seeing the how they're uh, connected. And so we did that with greed, aversion, and delusion. You know, there are three ca- in Buddhism, there are three simple personality types, each one of us. We have all three, but we kind of specialize in one most of the time. So we got these panels of a greedy, greed type, self-identified. We didn't go, you, 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 you're the greedy type. So self-identified, greed type, aversive type, deluded type. It was actually really revealing to see the world views and how to those types, they really made sense. And they're all kind of looking at each other going, yes, 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 right. And then the deluded panel got up there. It was kind of fascinating. Because <laughs> they were all like, what are we meant to be doing? And How do we do this? But there were some themes, right, that came out. And a big one was shopping. Someone mentioned it, and they went, oh, shopping, I hate shopping. I, I have to have a list, and I have to be really clear and like where to go, and if I don't have my list, I don't even go. You know, just this sense of confusion that can happen when they, they were going shopping. And one of the people on the panel said he was often complimented by how well put together his clothes were. He worked in a very professional uh, setting. People would often compliment him, and he said, I don't have a clue about clothes. I have a personal shopper, and she says, buy this, this, and this, and wear this with this, and this with this, and and she puts little tags, and he just pulls them out, and there's his outfit. (laughs) And so that's how he, you know, coped with the shopping thing. But then after a while, he came back and said, 
you know, he said, I'll just go to her every now and then and she'll get me all these outfits. And then after a while he came back and said, you know, I actually never think of calling her up. She calls me and says, you need to go shopping. So you can just see it's a, it's a whole tendency of how we can relate to the world. And I'm not meaning to make fun of deluded types. Some of my best friends are deluded types. Um, and they have beautiful qualities. All of the character types have. But it's just interesting to look at when we're in that mode, how we relate to the world. So again, another DPP, we're exploring dependent origination, where the seed factor is ignorance. And from ignorance, all of the cycle of samsara uh, keeps spinning uh, through to uh, birth, old age, sickness, death, to suffering. And so we talked about the traditional definitions, and then I asked people to talk about... um, their own personal experiences of delusion. And they said things like, when they're in denial or there's defensiveness or an overzealous support for a certain idea, when they fall back into patterns that they know actually cause suffering, when they're on automatic pilot and there's not a sense of um, ethics or morals or some kind of judgment, discernment being at work. For me, a big... I often, for delusion, as I said, when you're in it, it's it's hard to know. You, it's it's actually helpful to reflect on actions or periods where you know you were deluded. For me, the hallmark is, what was I thinking? You know, where you have some idea, you think it's great, or you just, I'm going to do this or say this, and afterwards you're like, oh my God, what was I? Reflect on that. That's how we learn to understand what it's like when we're in that deluded state and actually perhaps question it a little so we're not so um, caught in it. Ground in the body. This is why the body is so helpful. Use practices like the RAIN acronym to help us stay connected. That practice that we've given you a few times, am I aware? It's a great practice to drop that in. Usually you can say yes, right, chalk one up. It's great to just actually get that confirmation that you're knowing what's happening. So use the practices. The contracted mind, Greg's meditation, I hopefully he'll do it one day and we can learn about it, but it's the mind that's identified, can, uh, rigid, dull, you know, again, I, won't, don't, I don't think I need to talk too much about that mind. I think we've talked about it quite a bit. But I did want to say something about the restless mind which is one that we're invited to be aware of, the distracted or restless mind. Because I really, um, in looking in my own experience, in talking now to, to many, many people, I think restlessness is the most common and pervasive hindrance for Westerners, really the source of a lot of suffering. And, um, it's very can be very subtle and very pervasive in the beginning. Most of us had, what I call garden variety restlessness, you know, just from kind of the busyness of life and getting here and then slamming on the brakes retreat mode. And there's the mind-body, ah, you know, what what are you asking me to do day after day? So just that kind of antsiness that we can have. But now, I'm sure you still know this quality of the restless mind, the restless body, the inability to fully connect with and accept the present moment. Whatever's happening, this is restlessness. And what I see is that restlessness is both the cause of 
all the other hindrances and the result of all the other hindrances. So it kind of gets fed by them. You know, if you're really wanting something and it's, it's not here, what's that felt sense like? The mind is agitated, right? If something's averse, if there's unpleasantness in the body, restlessness in the mind, get me out of here. It's really quite deep. And it's actually one of the last fetters to go. So it's interesting to see how deep at a very subtle level this restlessness can be. But it's understandable, right? We live in a chaotic, overwhelming world. I mean, the amount of stimulation and agitation and stress that most of us live with. And it's just this alternating parade, internally and externally, of greed, aversion, and delusion. And the mind is kind of reeling from that. So we've had years of the mind being conditioned to this level of restlessness, agitation, non-settledness, opposite of concentration. As one teacher said, distraction is the habit of the mind. It's a habit and we keep feeding it. And in meditation, you can have the experience, I call it sheepdog mind. It's where, you know, you have the intention to be mindful, the thoughts of the sheep, mindfulness is the sheepdog, very, you know, trying to be well-trained. The sheep, you know, they dart out from it, whatever they're doing. Grab that, bring it back. Okay. And you, but the sheep, you know, when they're even when they're standing still, are like really kind of like this, and then wow, out they go, boom. It's exhausting, right, to have this kind of mindfulness. Sheep, you want the sheep, the dog, the whole shebang, calm, right? Just steady, present. But that's our common experience. So we have to start looking at what's being fed here. What's What's the nature of this mind that, that has this level of agitation? So this is where the mindfulness of mind is so revealing. We start to look at what is actually the content. When I say content, I don't mean the story, but this field of these attitudes, states of mind, and how are we feeding them? We certainly can get curious about the thoughts themselves. They, they can also be revealing, but not to keep telling ourselves a story, but to look at the types of thoughts and what we do with them. It's amazing how little brain power a yogi needs to get through a day. I'd really like you to test this one day. <laughs> you know, the minimum amount of thinking, evaluating, judging, de- deciding, etc., right? The schedule set. The meals are there, you know, all of the stuff that now we kind of know the flow. Yet how much time do we spend in this simple environment deciding and figuring out and judging and evaluating and comparing? We don't need to think about that much. Start trusting that a little. And as Joseph, he always has these great one-liners, Joseph Goldstein, nothing is worth thinking about. That has two meanings, right? Nothing is worth thinking about, and nothing is worth thinking about. So see the nature of a thought. A thought is just a blip in the mind, a little blip of energy. You believe it, become solid, there's the world and your relationship to it, identification. See it as it is, a momentary arising, like a fog, a wisp, a bubble, a blip. So we start to look at this mind and its, its contents. The process of meditation, as I've said, is this revealing of the layers, whether they're in a moment 
of the experience or over time. Many of you have talked about uh, deep and old wounds, hurts, memories. This is a powerful part of this practice. Whatever is unresolved for us will come up. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't be working with that. This is such an important part of practice. But to see the power of the mindfulness in bringing them into this present moment as they are without adding to them, rejecting or feeding them. Our willingness to be with experience as it is, is the heart of practice. Pema Chodron says, all of practice is learning to stay. It's a bit like my dog analogy, right? Learning to stay, sit, you could say that, right? Sit, stay, beginning of the sitting, sit, stay. There's your dog practice. And then the next factor is to know the concentrated mind. Again, could say a lot about this, the concentrated mind, the depths of concentration that a a mind can go, go to, as the Buddha said, never underestimate the power of a concentrated mind. So a concentrated mind, an exalted mind, an unsurpassed mind, they're all kind of this trajectory of the mind ripe for awakening through inside or through jhana, states of jhana. But also we know the unconcentrated mind, also often our experience. Though again, I'm not talking here what's useful for us is not necessarily depths of jhana, getting our badges of, you know, I've done first jhana, what about you? Fourth jhana, your stars on your shirt. Doesn't work that way, not that helpful. But continuous and steady moments of mindfulness, really helpful to allow again and again mind and body to come together in this moment, whether it's uh, to the level of access concentration, where the hindrances are basically reduced, there's a steadiness with the chosen object, kanika samadhi, moment-to-moment mindfulness, where even though the objects are changing, perhaps even rapidly, the mindfulness is continuous. The mindfulness is the steadying factor. And as I said earlier, this level of concentration enables us to be with more subtle experiences, more clearly with experience, see the nuances of experience, or stay with experience when it's challenging or difficult. Concentration also brings a sweetness to the practice, a sense of contentment and calm that's really a balm, it's really healing, it's really necessary. So it has many beautiful qualities. And the sutta ends with knowing the mind that's liberated or not liberated. And most of us say, yeah, that one I know, not liberated. But there's an invitation to not underestimate or diminish the freedom that you actually know the level of insight, your experience, that you can trust and know for yourself, not as some future goal. To notice the moments of non-clinging, the moments of freedom, of peace, of calm, of contentment, however they might be manifesting. Noticing these wholesome states, the times of letting go, the times of connection, even if it's temporary, this is onward leading. This is beneficial, this is wholesome. When the mindfulness has a momentum to it, has a flow, when there's a sense of interest, a love of the practice, even when it's difficult, 
this is what we can know for ourselves, that the mind has that possibility of freedom, even if it's temporary. Ajahn Buddhadasa would talk about temporary Nibbāna, essential for us. And to really recognize that this is the direction the path is going, to more freedom, more happiness, and more peace, out of knowing this mind as it is right now. So we'll finish with the words of Ajahn Chah from A Taste of Freedom. In truth, there is nothing really wrong with the mind. It is intrinsically pure. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness and sorrows, but the mind's true nature is none of these things. That gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. Really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful, just like a leaf which is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to these sense impressions. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, we will be unmoved. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them, to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. So let's just let the words settle into silence. So we must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Thanks for listening to the Dhamma. Now half hour for walking and then back for the chanting nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.